And we're back. Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. Today I want to talk about abuse in the church. Did you know that one in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused at some point before they turn 18 years of age? Now let's keep this simple. If you had a church of 100 men and 100 women, over 20% of your congregation are survivors of sexual abuse. Boz was born into a well-known evangelical home. He went to law school and started as a prosecutor. And that is when he encountered the horror of child sexual abuse. Boz Chavijan is an attorney who represents abuse survivors in civil lawsuits around the country. Boz, welcome to the MercyCast. Great to be here, Raleigh. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I felt like I needed to invite you because... Well, you better have invited me. I know. We've been friends for a while. I've known yeah. you for a while. I'm starting to take it a little bit personally, but... Well, it was personal. I that's agree. That's why it's, it's always personal long. with you. It is always personal with me. Yeah. And so it's interesting. So I feel like you have a unique view coming from the family that you come from and its kind of place in evangelicalism. And also coming as a prosecutor to see clergy sex abuse, to see abuses of power in the local church. Tell me, at what point did it click when you were a young prosecutor, you're seeing this case hit your desk? What was going through your mind at the time? Well, you know, I think to understand that, I go back a little bit to the world I grew up in, as you mentioned. Grew up in a large family, a Christian family, family that was fairly well known as, as I was the third eldest grandchild of the late Billy Graham. And so we, you know, as, as normal as our lives were, the older I get, the more I realize we did not have such a normal childhood. I did not. But I, you know, this notion of abuse within the church or outside of the church was really something I knew almost nothing about. And I'm, I'm in some sense, I'm grateful for that. I'd never experienced it. I didn't know anybody until I got a little bit older who had survived sexual abuse. But as I became a prosecutor after law school, you know, different offices handle things differently. But in my office, they would hand out cases like a a deck of cards. So you'd have a burglary case and a trespass case and maybe attempted homicide and a sexual battery case and just get all these different type of cases. And as I began working these cases and prosecuting these cases, the cases that really grabbed my heart over time were the sexual abuse cases, especially the childhood sexual abuse cases. And I'll never forget, I was in a meeting uh, with a, a nine-year-old girl and her parents. And this nine-year-old girl had lived not too far away from the very place we were meeting. And there was a family that lived close by whose father, as a father that lived with his three daughters, was divorced. Father became friends with her family. In fact, her father and this particular individual, the perpetrator, became best friends. In fact, the father told me at one moment in time, he, I was closer to him than I am to my own brother. And over a long period of time, that man sexually victimized this nine-year-old girl. And when you're in a room and you're hearing a nine-year-old 
have to explain the horrors that no nine-year-old, no human being should ever have to explain or even know about. Something changed. And it was at that point in time that I realized that not only was I privileged to handle this case and to, and to advocate for this nine-year-old, but that our office really would, would serve these survivors much better if we started a unit that just focused on sexual crimes. And so I won't go into the long story, but, but I just found a lot of prosecutors were uncomfortable with these type of cases. And, and when they were uncomfortable with them, they either didn't file on them or gave really sweet plea deals. And I thought, man, these are some of the worst, the most heinous offenses that exist. You should not be giving out sweet plea deals. And so we ultimately started a, a sexual crimes unit. I was the division chief. And it was during that period of time where I oversaw the prosecution of thousands of these types of cases, both involving children and adults, that it hit me over time how many of my cases in some way, shape, or form involved a faith community. Either the person, adult or child, had been sexually victimized by somebody within that faith community. Or they had been sexually victimized by somebody outside that faith community and had brought that issue to the attention of their church leaders who had right. minimized it, dropped the ball. And as a result of that, these already traumatized abuse survivors were further traumatized by the very community that they had hoped and had anticipated would be their greatest supporter. Instead, oftentimes, more often than I could count as a prosecutor, that faith community turn their back on those, the very people that they needed to serve most at that period of time. Yeah, because I think in many churches, when someone comes out about this happened to me, they're almost seen as trying to stir the pot or a villain sometimes. I've noticed that in some unhealthy church situations, they will often protect their own over those most vulnerable. They will protect, like they will listen to the perpetrator more than they will the person who's been victimized? Well, have you seen that? We, I think it's somewhat human nature that we gravitate towards the narratives that we are most comfortable with. So, for example, you've got a very dynamic, charismatic youth pastor. Everybody loves. Right. Person steps forward and says, this person did this to me. It is much more comfortable to accept and believe the fact that this young person who stepped forward probably has problems at home and has got issues, maybe even has been caught in a lie or two. And so we're going to be quickly dismissive of that disclosure. Way easier to accept that narrative than perhaps the truth that this dynamic, charismatic youth pastor is engaged in this heinous criminal conduct. And because of that, we tend to ignore, minimize, or sometimes even villainize yes. the person who steps forward. And the perpetrator oftentimes is seen as the victim. Mm -hmm. And that the, and, and the perpetrator is... You just need to show them grace, boss. we got to show them grace. we got to show them the love of Jesus. And yeah. it's not even great. We don't think they even did anything. Yeah. They are being victimized, and we need to come around and support them because this person is out to destroy their ministry. And somehow, some way... If this person's ministry is destroyed, somehow people won't find Jesus. So it's all about God and, and Jesus. And so we're going to surround this person. And at, at the end of the day, the very person who am I'm convinced 
Jesus would have moved towards and loved is usually shown the door or has, has found the door of the church and left never to come back. Understandably so. And the perpetrator is seen as somebody who's been through a tough time that we need to love, forgive. And like you said, we need to demonstrate whatever grace we can. I have a good friend of mine, Victor Vith, who, who shared with me an article years ago. In fact, he, he actually wrote an article about this where talked about the fact that, that abuse survivors, oftentimes what happens in churches is that the survivors, we, we demonstrate and show law to survivors and grace to perpetrators, when in actuality, we need to do the exact opposite. Right. Absolutely. I will tell churches, oftentimes the people that you villainize, those are the people that have been victimized. And we want things to fit in these perfect little boxes, you know, very black and white. Life, life doesn't always work out like that. And so you're sitting there, you're getting all these cases, you're starting to see themes, you're seeing these themes of faith communities and people being exploited either within the context of the faith community or in some way they are exploited and they don't feel safe or do not feel heard when they share with high-ranking leaders of the faith community. As you're kind of processing this, because it sounds like a lot to take on, especially with your background, what happened next? Well, I left the prosecutor's office after about eight years and went into private practice. And during that period of time, I won't go into the longer story, but but started an organization called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. The purpose of starting Grace was as a result of my years as a prosecutor, seeing so many cases where I thought, man, my understanding growing up was that the church was a place of refuge. And what I've come to realize is that the church oftentimes is a place of trauma. And so what can I do with what I've learned on the front lines as a prosecutor, as a division chief who supervised thousands of these cases? What can I do to help educate and equip the church and come alongside survivors to establish some degree of hope for them and, and to learn from them? And so Grace started Grace in 2004. And Grace, even to this day, is primary two missions. One is to train and equip the church through our safeguarding initiatives, going into churches and faith communities and educating them on abuse issues, all types of abuse issues. Started with child sexual abuse. That's our main focus. But you know what? When you talk about sexual abuse, you have to talk about spiritual abuse. You got to talk about physical abuse. Absolutely. And when you talk about child sexual abuse, you oftentimes have to talk about adult violence. And now we're dealing with elder abuse and all those types of things, helping churches, equipping the churches that want to learn and want to be teachable about these issues, helping them develop safeguarding policies and procedures and educating every demographic in the church. We don't just go to the church leaders and educate. It's critical we teach and educate from the pastor all the way down to even the kids in the church about these, these issues. And so that, that the protection of children, the protection and, and the refusal to allow people in the church to exploit the vulnerabilities of others becomes the very DNA of that church. And then real quickly, the second part of the work Grace does are, you know, institutional assessments or institutional response. And that is where, where somebody comes forward perhaps and says, 10 years ago, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. Church contacts Grace to go, we want to know what happened. We want to know what role the church played, who knew what, when, how, 
we come in and do that investigation, provide a report to both church leaders and to the abuse survivor, anybody who disclosed sexual abuse, with, the, with recommendations, with the hope that the survivor will be affirmed in their disclosure and will walk away knowing that they had been finally listened to. And the church leadership will learn something from this so that they can make the necessary changes to do everything they can to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And so for a church to do this, it would almost assume that they either know about trauma or are willing to understand what trauma is. With what you have found as you've worked with churches around the country, do you feel that churches are already trained to address trauma? No, most churches have no clue about what trauma is. They think they do. One of the dangers that we run into with certain churches, not all churches, obviously, is this combination of of arrogance and ignorance. That's a deadly combination, especially when it, when it comes to understanding and, and responding to abuse. And so I love it when a church calls and goes, we have no clue about any of this and we, we need to learn. Okay, great. We will be there and we will walk with you through this process. But the churches, and most of the time, the churches who believe this aren't reaching out to us. The churches who believe that they know about trauma or that everything they need to know about trauma can be found in the confines of the Bible are the churches that are oftentimes the most dangerous. And so those churches we find struggle with, with even reaching out to us. And when they do reach out to us, they really struggle with being teachable. And here's the thing I tell pastors, listen, you, you went to seminary, you know how to hopefully in some degree preach studied God's word, ministered to other people. Sure. But you also have to understand what you're not good at, what you don't know. And what you don't know is this issue. So why in the world wouldn't you reach out to those who do and say, help, teach us? Yeah. yeah. And we're seeing more and more that do that. I mean, I will, I will say that in my opinion, and this is generalization, the younger generation of church leaders, at least in the Protestant world, seem to be more open and understanding of the fact that A, they don't know what they need to know, and B, it's imperative that they reach out to those who do. And that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, there's this focus on specializations that, yes, here's the spoke of the wheel. This is the part of the process that I am responsible for. But it's okay to ask someone, hey, do you see blind spots? What can we grow in? How can we do this better? You know, as you were talking about this idea of arrogance and ignorance, this deadly combination, I'm kind of thinking about just the different types of trauma and abuse that can happen in a place where there is no training to the contrary, where there's no training to ultimately recognize trauma. Like, I didn't know what spiritual abuse was until I got a taste of it. And I think some people, they're just doing what was done for them at their old church or doing what their seminary professor told them to do. But we often miss this relational component. And so I think as you're coming in and talking about trauma, you're saying, yes, sometimes mistakes are made. Sometimes there's malice where people are hurt. And we have to be able to receive people who've experienced trauma rather than push them away. Because I think that churches have been dealing with trauma for years. 
But oftentimes, if someone's experiencing trauma, it's easier to push them away than to receive them. Well, oftentimes we don't know how to respond to trauma. Yeah. And so because we don't understand trauma and we go, we use this term trauma, even beginning to go, what is trauma? When we don't understand it, oftentimes church leaders will never acknowledge that. So they'll, they'll wing it. Well, how would you, when you wing it, you end up aggravating the trauma and making it worse. I can tell you this in all my years of dealing with this issue, almost 30 years, I can tell you that so many abuse survivors have told me that the abuse that they suffered was horrific, traumatic, and they will spend a lifetime healing from it. But in their mind, what was most egregious and and the, the pain and harm that will be most long lasting for them was the failed response of the faith community that they were a part of. That right there should be a, a very loud message to church leaders saying, don't blow it. This is not something you can afford to mess up on. So figure it out, learn it, do whatever it takes, because we are living in a world surrounded by trauma. Whether you want to call it trauma or not, it's trauma. And we are, we are, and the world's only getting more traumatic. And if we don't, as pastors, we don't say and acknowledge that we need to under have a greater understanding of that in order to serve those that God places in our midst, then I don't know why you're a pastor. Mm. You're a pastor to preach, then go do something else. Do it. No, nothing personal, but go do a podcast. But don't be a pastor. Learn it, understand it so you can serve those who God has placed in your midst, because I guarantee you there's not a church in this country. There's not a church in this world that is not filled with traumatized people. Well, and oftentimes when you're trained in seminary and I went to seminary and it was it was an enlightening experience, both good and bad. But one thing I picked up was you can't have ministry without relating to people. But when you're studying, it's very easy to get into this pragmatic worldview where you're thinking, all right, as long as I learn these things and preach this way, you know, this is going to happen. You still have to have the relational component. You have to know how to connect with people who have vastly different backgrounds than you do. Well, and the reality is we have a lot of pastors today, not all, of course, especially of larger churches that don't engage with people. Their work for the week is a staff meeting sermon prep and preaching and they have people they have people that deal with the congregants they don't deal with the congregants themselves and and so when even you have a an emergency or a traumatic situation i have a i had a case a couple years ago in texas large mega church in texas my client reported being sexually abused by a youth leader of the church and it took months months the head pastor of that church to reach out. And I think if I recall correctly, it was a, a note that was sent. And I thought, wow, like, do you have that many kids getting sexually abused in your church that you just can't take the time? Or is it because you have people to do that? And I'm just here to tell you, that's not being a pastor. No, that's a cushy job where you make six figures, you preach, you have everybody eating out of your hands because you get to stand in front of a group for an hour every week and they take every word you say down in, in notes and want to get close to you. And it's a really great, great feeling. 
and it's a breeding ground for narcissists versus the pastors I have met who aren't like that. The pastors who love having relationships with the very people God has placed in their midst and, and not just have relationships, but realize that the people God has placed in their midst are there to teach him or her something as well. So the pastor is not just there to teach them, but man, the congregation and those God places in your midst have so much to teach you. And those to me are the true pastors in our midst. What I've learned just in my own ministry is that when you view people that may be experiencing vulnerability, you view them as projects. It's very easy to see yourself as a hero and you're coming in and I'm going to help this person. I've seen this with different short-term mission trips. How can we go and bless this community? I don't think that's totally wrong. But what I will always tell people is, hey, when you're meeting with this person, you need to realize that God may be teaching you something through them and that that person may be God's answer to your prayers. You're not called to go and fix people. The people that you're ministering to, it should be a give and take. It's not supposed to be this one-sided thing. And I think when we have these issues with not understanding how our power projects, we're going to have problems. Well, how about, how about just when you're meeting with somebody, even, let me just take a step further, even instead of just thinking God may be teaching me something here, how about the fact that this is a human being that I am privileged to be with at this moment in time, and I'm no better than they are, I'm no more important than they are. Right. Boy, am I privileged to be in their midst and to engage with them, to learn from them and to walk life with them, period. Mm -hmm. But we, we don't, it's so Mm -hmm. transactional. The Mm -hmm. Christian world, especially the evangelical world is extremely transactional. We don't even see it that way. No, oftentimes, but but it is. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I will hear so many people talk about their church model if they're planting a church and I'm not here to poo poo on church planners. I think this is a noble thing to do. But a lot of people will use the, you know, first few chapters of Acts really as as a model. What we don't understand is that the majority of the people who were being saved in droves were people experiencing extreme vulnerability and they were coming together. This wasn't like the privileged few starting something. This was people who really didn't have an option but They found Christ and found each other in the same fell swoop, and then they were going out. And yeah, I think when we miss the human element, when we miss the personal element, it just becomes a transaction. It becomes a hero's story. It becomes a project-minded situation, and it's not personal, and it's not interpersonal. Well, being non-personal is much easier for most folks because you don't, being personal can be messy. And it can be exhausting. So if we can keep it at surface level, if we can keep it transactional, for many people, that's more preferable. I'm just grateful that the life of Jesus did not demonstrate that. It was not, Jesus lived anything but a transactional life. And maybe we need to focus a little bit more on understanding that than we do. But going back to what you asked earlier, I mean, I, I, you know, after Grace continued to, to grow and I went to left to go teach law for 12 years, one of the reasons I went to be a law professor was I thought, wow, Grace can't afford to hire me as a full-time executive director, but I, this new organization is, is beginning to, to blossom and 
and we got to put time towards it. And I can't do that as a, a full-time practicing lawyer. So I, I thought, well, if I went to go teach in academia, maybe I'd have some extra time to do that. So I did. And so, which I always somewhat joke, but there's some seriousness to it. I said, well, I'm going to have Jerry Falwell of all people, Jerry Falwell Jr., of all people pay me to teach law students. But in essence, he's paying me to help put together an organization he knows nothing about. <laughs> and I spent that 12 years working hard being a law professor at Liberty University. Loved my students. We'll have a whole nother podcast another day, another time about Liberty University. And it'll probably be much more interesting than this one. But, <laughs> but it did give me the time to work in putting together grace. And so, it came to a point where I had to make a decision, you know, do I, do I step down from teaching law and become the full-time director of grace? Cause by this time in, you know, 2019, the work of grace had grown significantly around the country, or do we, do we get somebody else to run the organization? Somebody who has, in my opinion, better tools in their toolbox than I do. And at the very same time, it was becoming increasingly clear to me that I, a, I needed to leave Liberty. B, one of the great passions of my life was advocating for abuse survivors. And I, for years, had been getting calls from survivors asking me for lawyers, advice, you know, uh, referrals. And so I was doing that. And one day it hit me. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a lawyer. And I've done some of this type of work before. And I made the decision that I wanted to spend the rest of my life using my law degree to advocate for abuse survivors in civil cases, which we can talk about that in a minute. And so I stepped down from teaching, stepped down from being the executive, the part-time executive director of Grace. And we hired a guy named Pete Singer, who has way better credentials and way better tools in his toolbox to work with Grace at this point in time. And I came back here to Florida and have been running and operating a law practice that represents abuse survivors in civil cases uh, around the country. And I, I can't think of anything. I feel like all the various aspects of my experience and professional life have come to this moment. And I, I certainly hope and pray that I can spend the rest of my, my living years doing this in honor of those who have come to me for help. Because I have said oftentimes that the abuse survivors that I'm privileged to meet are the real heroes and they're the ones that continue to teach Absolutely. me daily so much. And so to walk alongside of them in courtrooms and holding churches and organizations accountable is I'm thrilled to do. Well, it's interesting to see from just the family that you grew up in, then you're a prosecutor, you're getting these cases, then you build the team, then you start grace, then you're a law professor. Oh, and I would let me do interrupt with that yeah. real quick. Again, I didn't plan this, but I was a law professor and during my time there, put together a course called Child Abuse in the Law. And to this day, when I have cases outside of Florida, I can't think of anything better than calling former students to who will, who will act as my local counsel. And so I'm working now currently with former students as colleagues in advocating and representing abuse survivors in courtrooms around the country. I, I, and I would never have, that was not a plan, but what a privilege that's been. No, that's really incredible yeah. because I can just see the trajectory. You know, that's why I was walking it through because I'm like, you know, I can see kind of God's hand in that and just how you, you started here, but here's where you are. 
But after leaving Grace in the role that you were there, you stepped into your law practice again. And what's your relationship with churches now? Because with Grace, you're providing investigations and trainings and helping them see, you know, what trauma looks like. But what does it look like now in your new role? So, so last week I was with my mom at the Cove, which is a Billy Graham training center and they have bringing speakers and my mom works there. And so I was visiting her and she goes, you got to come, come down to the Cove. And this week we've got Tony Evans who's speaking. Who's a very well-known, yeah. wonderful pastor. Absolutely. So before, before his, his uh, presentation, there was a group of us that had dinner and we saw so there about eight of us sitting at a table. And so he asked me what I do. And so I tried to explain it to him. And I said, well, in actuality, I spend most of my days suing churches. Yeah. And it was just always, it was funny to sort of see his expression. I, I think he was trying to figure out how to respond. That was a good one line. Um, yeah, I, I sue churches. But I, I, I told him exactly what I said. Is that on ago. your billboard? I sue churches. And yeah. I don't, I think I like that idea, but not yet. Yeah, good good. I'll yeah. give you some credit for that. Yeah, please. Thank you. But I, you know, I told him, like I said, a couple minutes ago, I said, I, I can't think of any group of people uh, where I'm mo- more honored and privileged to serve than those who've been so hurt by the church and so ignored or vilified by the church who are now finding their own voice, reclaiming their agency and working to hold the church and the offenders accountable for their conduct. I was just at a mediation last week in a case where, and which I'd like to talk about in a minute, adult clergy abuse, but this woman's single mom was, was groomed by a pastor and I won't go into all the details, but just devastated. Talk about traumatized definitely traumatized on so many levels. And, you know, she came to me, she didn't really, didn't think she had a case. She had a lot of lawyers who had turned it down. I said, let's see what we can do. And long story short, we were able to resolve her case last week, which required and forced the church to show up at a mediation, required and forced the offender to show up at the mediation, to answer for what they did, and ultimately for them to, to compensate her for, for what they did or what they failed to do. And it's not about the money, but I can tell you this, that client that, excuse me, that, that mediation was a significant step forward for my client in her healing journey. Mm. She left that mediation, a different person than the one who was when she came. And it's not because of the money. It's because she finally reclaimed some agency. She reclaimed a little bit of power that had been stolen from her. And what we don't understand is how significant that is in the life of somebody who's been abused. Absolutely. And you're alluding to this, but my next question would be, what can the law offer someone who has been abused? I mean, the law is not the sum total answer, okay? okay. But, but let me give you a, a very brief legal lesson. And hopefully if you're driving, pull over to the side because I don't want you to fall asleep as you're driving. There are two primary areas of law, criminal law civil law. Criminal law focuses on crimes perpetrated by an individual. Law and order. There you go. In criminal law, the parties are the government and the defendant. And the ultimate objective in a criminal case is uh, incarceration. Right. Civil law is not criminal law. Civil law, the parties are the individual who was hurt and the party that's responsible for the hurt. And so, for example, in a criminal case, the victim in a criminal sexual battery case, the victim is not a 
is not a party to the case. The victim's a witness. So the victim ultimately doesn't make the decision, ultimate decisions on what happens in the case. The prosecutor does. In a civil case, the victim brings a claim against those who are responsible, oftentimes the perpetrator and oftentimes the third parties, churches, whoever employed the perpetrator who are responsible for that particular individual. And and that gives a lot of agency and power to that victim because it's their case. I tell my clients all the time, you are in the driver's seat. You will make the decision as to whether or not this case gets filed. You will make the decision whether or not this case gets settled, which is significant. And the ultimate objective in a civil case is not incarceration, but is compensation. And what people don't understand, they go, oh, you're just, you know, going after money. And, and I don't hide behind that. Yeah, of course, we're going to go after those responsible for compensation. A, because that's what the system provides to us. But B, have you ever seen how expensive it is to see a therapist day in and day out when you don't have insurance? Do you know the cost of inpatient care where a lot of survivors find themselves? It's expensive. And so when somebody has to spend a lifetime going to therapy, why should they have to pay for that out of their own pocket? The ones who are responsible for the trauma that, that was perpetrated against them should be the ones that are financially responsible, the cost of healing. And so that's what we do. That's what Boz Law does. And that is a, a bigger than the money, though, at the end of the day, I believe that that process can be a significant step of healing for many of my clients. And it's a privilege to be able to see that. And like I said earlier, to walk alongside of them with them during that process. And what percentage would you say, I mean, this could be ballpark of your clients would be those who have experienced adult clergy abuse? At least 50%. And, and that's, that raises a, a good question of what is adult clergy abuse? Yeah. Adult clergy abuse there are many different definitions, but it's when, when somebody in spiritual authority uses that authority to identify, groom, and ultimately sexually victimize an individual. And when I say sexually victimize, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, like a forced sexual battery. It is, I'm using my position as a pastor. So for example, I had a case recently, pastor identifies a, a single mom in his church, ultimately offers her a position at the church. When she's working at the church, he then suggests that he begins to counsel her. And through that counseling, he really encourages her to move into the church parsonage because he's not living there with his family and it's empty. So he encourages her to do that. So think about that. This pastor has become this individual's pastor therapist, employer, landlord. And he takes those positions and he uses those positions to engage in misconduct, physical and sexual misconduct with this particular individual. That's probably the most surprising type of case that I have encountered by going into private practice. And what I mean by that is the number of calls our office gets in a week regarding Adult clergy abuse is shocking. The number of cases, I don't care where, whether you're in Seattle, Washington or Miami, Florida, I don't care how the distance, how much distance is between these two areas. When I see cases and they're so similar, these 
these pastors, these spiritual leaders, it's almost like they're all reading out of the same playbook. But the, the, the conduct that they engage in is so destructive because oftentimes these victims are so shamed. They feel like they are co-participants. And what they don't realize is that, no, you're not a co-participant in this conduct. You are a victim. This pastor has a profound degree of power and authority over you. And that pastor has intentionally used that power and authority to zero in on your weaknesses and to exploit those weaknesses to the point where they can feel comfortable in sexualizing that relationship. And as a result of sexualizing that relationship, uh, ultimately decimating the life of that individual. And, and it takes years. Sometimes these survivors never completely heal from that abuse. And they certainly don't want to ever walk back inside a church again. You know, it's interesting. I've had friends who have been abused by pastors or theological mentors that they thought they could trust. And it's fascinating, especially when it's people of the opposite sex and it gets out. They break their story. People will come up to me and they'll be like, well, I don't really think that was sexual abuse. I think that was an affair because it's two adults. And I'm like, well, you don't really understand the process of grooming. You don't really understand the misuse of power here. You don't, you don't understand what's going on. So could you define for us what is grooming? And then how does that kind of roll its way into spiritual abuse? Yeah, when I, and I would just say, I mean, that is the great lie that is told about adult clergy abuse, and that is that this is adultery. And look, think about it this way. When it's painted in that way, what oftentimes happens in churches is we go, well, the effect and consequence of that adultery is far more significant on the pastor than the woman, and therefore we feel sorry for the pastor because his ministry now has been destroyed. And, and you know what? We're actually a little angry at her. Doing this to him. And so we tend to surround the pastor with love and support and we demonize and vilify the woman because this is a woman that was engaging, they were both engaging in adulterous relationship, but the impact is far worse on this pastor. That's a lie because the reality is that this pastor knowingly and intentionally utilized his position of power and spiritual authority to do what he did. But sadly, so many victims buy the lie because they're surrounded by a, a community and a culture that accepts it. And they don't know any different until they connect with somebody later who says, actually, that's abuse. And they go, I never thought of it that way. Well, and it's interesting because so much of what we've been talking about as we're talking, I'm thinking of the word culture. It keeps coming up in my head because these things thrive because of the culture that we create. It lives right. rent-free, really. Right. And so until we examine our culture and examine some of our core basic beliefs, we're not going to see this. Right. Everyone hates seeing things on the headlines, but they don't know that this could be in their third pew. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, and, and the reality is, in my opinion, some people may disagree, that in today's sort of Western evangelical church, we have handed way too much power to leaders within, a, within the church and other religious organizations. We have given them carte blanche power. They decide who sits on their boards. They decide what they're going to do. 
They become superstars at these mega churches. So much power is given to, to one person and that power is inevitably abused to the detriment of those who don't have that power. And oftentimes it's those people who come to me after having been victimized by these leaders who nobody will believe that they were doing that or nobody really wants to acknowledge that. Um, and that's the, that's the other part of it is when it does come out, uh, instead of people running towards these, these survivors and saying, we're so sorry, what can we do? Contribute to your healing. They're looked at as the villain. And that to a, a person who's already struggling with shame is oftentimes too much to bear. When I was writing my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking, you and Dr. Diane Langberg were both like, you're going to talk about vulnerability. That's fine. But you also need to talk about power and its misuse yeah. because that is what's happening. And it really did. It kind of changed the tenor of my book. I, I focused I'm sure on, it made it a much better book. It was a much better yeah. book. Well, you're yeah, welcome. Absolutely. absolutely. You know, and also if you've read Boz's chapter in my book, <laughs> he says something to that. the effect of that he is Hugh Jackson. I think he was trying to say Hugh Jackman, but he said it incorrectly. And no, you don't know Hugh Jackson. Well, I cannot believe you didn't know that there, there is a Hugh Jackson. He's a basketball coach. Yeah, absolutely. He's an amazing man. That's a little, I mean, that's great, but that didn't really fit the context of our conversation. Because I, I, I know no. You no, don't know who Hugh Jackson is. I, I'm not going to, I'm asserting my Fifth Amendment right now. And you're not even my lawyer, but I'm going to assert it as my own lawyer. I mean, I, it was kind of funny to me. Yeah, it was pretty funny. But what was I talking about? I was talking about something brilliant before we went um, into that. Well, about power and the dynamic of power in, in the issue of talking about church abuse. Yeah. And so. Trafficking. I think we can really miss this power component. We can miss how we project it, but we can also miss how it's been enculturated. And so people will get hurt. The people with the least amount of power will be impacted by those with the most. And oftentimes when, and I've seen this in real time so many times, someone makes an accusation, people are like, well, that person's just, they talk a lot or they say they're immediately villainized because they may not fit the system. Yes. Yep. Yep. Power is, when's the last time that, and it, it does happen, but you have to think really hard. When's the last time somebody in a religious organization or church voluntarily stepped away from power? It seldom Mm. happens. And oftentimes in these religious organizations, the person with power hands the power to a successor, oftentimes a family member. So they're still holding on to power. They hate to give up power. I think that's part of our human nature. We hate to give up power. You see that in, in not just inside the, the faith community. And so when you think of the life of Jesus, Jesus actually voluntarily gave up power. And that's what was so profound about the life of Jesus and his death is he walked away from power. And until we understand that and embrace that, we're always going to have people with too much power in faith communities and those with no power who are finding themselves victimized, minimized, marginalized, villainized by those with power. And that does not reflect the Jesus that I know no, and at all. As Jesus was sending out his disciples to, in a sense, share the message of this impending kingdom, he sent them out as lambs amongst wolves. He said, Sorry. don't take two sacks. 
Don't take extra this. Don't take extra that. Depend on the people that you're caring for, that you're sharing this message with. That is a vulnerable mission. That's sending people out. And really, it's basically pushing back on this idea of we have to have it together to minister to people, that we have to have power and privilege to minister to people. You don't. And and so as you're bringing up this example of Jesus, I'm reminded that in a lot of ways, the systems that we create really insulate us from our own vulnerability and they kind of expose our power. In my life, the individuals that I've been privileged to encounter who have most powerfully reflected the love and character of Jesus have been the people that nobody spends any attention looking at, knowing, valuing, and, and, and I'm guilty of that too. And once in a while, I'll you know, be in, in the presence of one of these people and, and I'm fortunate enough for I think God to sort of tap me on the shoulder and go, I'm right there. My reflection is in that, that individual that nobody's paying attention to. That's, that's my reflection. And boy, when that happens, I'm so privileged with, to, to see that. It's not that the, the most beautiful reflections of Jesus in my life have never occurred inside the church or in a religious meeting, but have occurred in the most unlikely of places and have been seen in the most unlikely of people. And I'm so grateful for that. Oz, oftentimes when I end this podcast, I'll ask the person I'm interviewing to give us a few pieces of advice to kind of help us along our journey of learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. But I want to do it a little differently today. As you've talked about people who've experienced adult clergy abuse, what advice would you give them? Yeah, that's so important few things. And I would say I wouldn't just limit this category to those who, who've been abused by, uh, who are victims of adult clergy abuse, but anybody who's been sexually abused, but with an emphasis on, on that particular demographic. Number one, don't wait too long before you talk to a lawyer. I know that sounds crass, but it's not. I can tell you how many people, I can, excuse me, I cannot tell you how many people that I've had to hear the horrors of what was done to them, realize that they probably have some legitimate legal claim, but because they're coming to me at a time period that falls outside of the statute of limitations, which is the amount of time you have to bring a claim, I can't do anything for them. That is heartbreaking for me. So don't wait. That's number one. Number two, and this sounds crass too, but it's just, pragmatic. If you are engaged, you know, if you're finding yourself being victimized by a a clergy or a religious leader, and there are conversations that that person is having with you that are recorded or are part of a, a texting or messenger, that person has sent you photographs that that person should have never sent anybody. Don't get rid of them. Hold on to them preserve them. Even if they're telling you, you got to delete this stuff. Don't do it because I can tell you this people who've come to me with these claims, when they come to me with actual evidence that supports their claim, the claim is tenfold stronger. And there's a much greater likelihood that the other side is going to capitulate and to admit, or at least acknowledge what happened. 
and that the case will be settled. Those are very practical. Some people might say, like I said earlier, sort of crass recommendations, but they are the God honest truth because they are the issues that I'm running into on a weekly basis where people are finally ready to do something. They're finally ready to reclaim their agency only to be told by a lawyer, well, if you'd have come to me two years ago, I could have done something for you, but I can't because of the statute of limitations. So that doesn't mean that you have to take action, but at least talk to a lawyer who handles these types of cases. I'm one of them, but there are many others who handle these types of cases. At least sit down with them to know what your options are. And it may be that you decide, okay, I'm going to wait another year. I've got two years to wait. That's great. But at least know what your options are because the more information you have, the greater ability you are to make an informed decision and a decision that's going to be best for you. What would you say to those who are church leaders operating within these systems where many could be hurt? Two things. A, listen and learn. Humble yourselves. Find, identify, and I don't mean this in a bad way, like know who, who in your church are survivors, who in your church are suffering from some form of trauma. Not so you can exploit them, but so very opposite. You can learn from them. Give them a seat at the table so you can learn and change, work to change the culture of that church so that the protection of children and the protection of other individuals becomes part of the very DNA of who you are as a church. And number two, know this, that if you don't, you will be held accountable. And if it's up to me, I hope I'm the one that's holding you accountable because I'm representing somebody who is now reclaiming their agency and are absolutely committed to holding you as a church and an individual accountable for the law and God. I've often heard people say that we need to be a voice for the voiceless, but the problem is people already have voices. We're just talking too loudly. We're speaking over them. Yeah, Their voices are the ones we need to be listening to. So maybe we need to shut up and listen and create an environment that empowers them to use their voice, not ours. If you are interested in more conversations like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. If you want bonus episodes, as well as a plethora of other resources, become a paid member at lmpg.org for $10 a month. You will get access to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dive deeper. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. We want to hear from you, so you can email us at info at mercycast.com. Till next time. Have mercy on yourselves and each other.